Good morning and welcome to Rising. It is a snow day here in Washington, D.C., so I am joining Jessica at home, nice and cozy. Jessica, it's good to see you. Yes, it is a snow day here in Iowa as well, Amber. That sounds like it could be an evergreen statement, but I'm excited nonetheless. It's beautiful outside, um, but unfortunately, not so great stuff going on around the rest of the world. Jessica, why don't you kick us off? Yeah, Amber, Houthi rebels launched missile attacks against a U.S. tanker overnight in the Red Sea, but failed to hit it per the Pentagon Central Command. The Houthis say their attacks on Western shipping and commerce are in solidarity with the people of Gaza. President Biden was asked whether he thinks the U.S. bombing in the region is working to deter more Houthi interference. Let's watch his answer. Are the airstrikes in Yemen working? Well, when you say working, are they stopping the Houthis? No. Are they going to continue? Yes. Yesterday, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said he told the U.S. that he opposes a Palestinian state in any post-war scenario. Here's Bibi talking to the press. For 30 years, I am very consistent and I'm saying something very simple. This conflict is not on the lack of a state of Palestinian but the existence of a state, the Jewish state. Every area that we evacuate, we receive terrible terror against that. It happened in South Lebanon, in Gaza, and also Judea and Samaria, which we did it. And therefore, I clarify that in other arrangement, any other arrangement, in the future, the state of Israel have to control on the entire area from the river to the uh, sea. National Security Spokesman John Kirby was pressed on the seemingly growing gap between Israel and the U.S. as it pertains to plans for the Middle East. Let's take a look. Do you have any reaction to uh, Netanyahu rejecting a Palestinian state in a post-war scenario for Gaza? I would just tell you that nothing's changed about President Biden's desire that uh, a two-state solution is really in the best interest of not only the Israeli people, but, uh, but of course, the Palestinian people. In fact, it's the best interest of the region. And we're not going to stop working towards that goal. And this is this is not a new comment by Prime Minister Netanyahu. We obviously see it differently. Uh, we believe uh, that the Palestinians have every right to live uh, in an independent state with peace uh, and security. Um, and the president and his team is going to continue to work on that. So I remember probably months ago on this show, Jessica, we were talking about basically this exact issue. And I think I said at the time that I was not at all optimistic about the idea of a two-state solution. And in fact, I didn't think either side wanted one. Now we're seeing apparently Netanyahu more openly admit that that is the case. What did you make of his press conference? It was very saying the quiet part out loud for me. This is what Jimmy Carter said coming out of negotiations as the most recent president that's noted this of the leader of Iran. He was also talking about Netanyahu at the time. And so when we think about what this means, you had Rashida Tlaib censured for saying from the river to the sea, Palestinians will be free. Palestinians did have free movement from the river uh, to the sea until the Nakba happened. There was the coexistence of Jewish and Israeli people on this land. And now you have President Netanyahu saying this will actually all be Israel when it was formerly Palestine. And so him saying that we need to have the absence of a Palestinian state at all, it's disgusting. It's despicable for the United States to have an ally saying this and to say, you know what, 
we actually do believe in an independent Palestinian state, then why are you giving them weapons to achieve this goal that they obviously and admittedly have? Obviously based on their actions, admittedly based on what Netanyahu has said behind closed doors, and now openly in public. And so the United States needs to take some stock and say, are we really getting into this international conflict with the Houthi rebels, which are backed by Iran? They're now trying to strike U.S. shipment back because we're trying to get weapons to a state, the state of Israel, to do something that we disagree with openly. That's the situation we're in right now. And it's ridiculous to me. It's absurd. It's time that the United States stops sending weapons to Israel and starts actually pushing their goal of having an independent Palestinian state, if that's really what John Kirby and the administration wants. Yeah, I feel similarly to the situation in Ukraine, where we have been battling over Ukraine funding. The American people have been turning against the idea of Ukraine funding and giving weaponry to Ukraine, even though they probably sympathize with that situation even more just from a majority level, because Ukraine was seen as as basically the innocent victim in all of this. Um, I think your perspective and the pro-Palestinian perspective would be that Israel was not necessarily an innocent victim because of the fact that they were given this land by the British, you know, however many years ago, decades ago. Um, and have since allowed people to settle on what would be considered Palestinian land. So, I mean, I think to that point, if that's a, the perspective of it, then there's even less, uh, I guess, reason or justification for continuing to give Israel funding and weaponry. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly how I feel. If it was, you know, Putin saying this, saying that all of Ukraine will become Russia, um, you know, it, it used to be a part of Russia. Actually, it would be less absurd than what we just heard from Netanyahu. It would deserve less political support from the United States. Um, it's, it's just ridiculous. Uh, that is, the United States supporting, uh, you know, Israel in this situation would be like if we were supporting Russia in the case of uh, their invasion of Ukraine. That's really what we're seeing here. They've explicitly said their intent here is to take this land. We know that they have intentionally been pushing Gazans out of Gaza, 2.2 million of them, and they've said that their plan is to have them settle in other places, that that's all that they have to resolve. The forced movement of people is a war crime. You already have this case over genocide being alleged by South Africa in the International Court of Justice. Unfortunately, the current president of the ICJ was a part of the Defense Council for the case of the United States versus Nicaragua. We talked with Jeremy Scahill, who's over you know, in Europe right now and was telling us that he's not super optimistic of the outcome of that case for that reason, that someone that defended the United States in a case where they were accused of terrorism and convicted is now running the ICJ. Nevertheless, I don't think this is gonna be the last case we see before the ICJ, but this has way more far-reaching foreign policy implications. If we're going to support Israel in, in taking over the entire state of Palestine, forcing Gazans to become refugees and find land elsewhere. Seemingly, they're going to do this in the West Bank and all of the Palestinian territory. We've already seen them arrest more people in the West Bank than ever before. The violence we're seeing in the West Bank has kind of been ignored because it's it's been so intense in Gaza. But there's really intense raids going on in the West Bank. There's uh, intense raids of refugee camps. And it's very concerning to see that people 
in the streets resisting the raids are are being arrested when there isn't a presence of Hamas in the West Bank. So you can't say that that's the reason for that. And so what's going to come of this? There's going to be constitutions potentially in the International Court of Justice where the United States has already been complicit seemingly in this genocide case. South Africa's written a letter saying they're going to bring the United States there. We're going to potentially see more cases for the forced uh, transfer or movement uh, of the Palestinians out of Gaza. And so the United States is likely to be complicit in that as well. But let's not forget that Iran is a major backer of the Houthi rebels, and we're fighting seemingly a proxy, two proxy wars, a proxy war for a proxy war over this entire situation that the United States has just said they don't support. Yeah, and I think there's a, a case to be made from the Israel side to say, you know, based on what happened on October 7th, the fact that there was legitimate terrorism done on that day, that we can't allow Hamas to continue to to rule over Palestinian land. I mean, especially considering the fact that they've been quite terrible to their own people. But then to say that Israel should be in charge rather than helping the Palestinians to install leadership that is more in tune with their needs and their wants um, is something that I, I think a lot of people are going to have a serious problem with. And uh, going to the Houthis, which you brought up, um, these missile strikes are apparently not working. Biden admitted that, which is very strange. Um, normally, that's probably not something that you would do. That would be another example of a leader saying the quiet part out loud. Um, but I, I do think it's interesting that the Houthis say that their justification is that they are against the war in Gaza, that they are trying to convince the United States to pool funding and weaponry from Israel. Um, I think that's sort of a convenient excuse and one that they think will get the international community on their side. But the reality is they have a history of doing this to shipping lanes. This is not the first time they've done this. Um, and the United States has a responsibility because of its presence in the region to help keep shipping lanes open. It's actually one of the reasons why our military was first created. It was one of our first acts as the U.S. military was to protect shipping lanes. And so the idea that we would just let them go or even allow them to sort of strong arm us into changing policy, I think would be a, a huge mistake. Um, and so the caution now with the Biden administration is, okay, are, if we do end up reducing or pulling funding from Israel or weaponry, how do we do so in a way that doesn't look like this is a victory of the Houthis, which are basically just rebel pirates who want to disrupt trade because it's good for them economically and because they like to be troublemakers. Yes, we're, we're going to continue to follow this and, and see how this unfolds. And if Biden's continue striking of Yemen, has any result at all whatsoever. More rising after this. Argentinian President Javier Millet delivered a speech at this year's World Economic Forum on a myriad of topics, ranging from GDP and growth rates to capitalism and wealth. Let's listen to some of that. Far from being the cause of our problems, free trade capitalism as an economic system is the only instrument we have to end hunger, poverty and extreme poverty across our planet. The empirical evidence is unquestionable. Therefore, since there is no doubt that free enterprise capitalism is uh, superior in productive terms, the left-wing doxa has attacked capitalism, alleging matters of morality saying, uh, that's what the detractors claim, that it's unjust. They say that capitalism is evil because it's individualistic and that collectivism is good because it's altruistic. 
of course, with the money of others. So they therefore advocate for social justice. But this concept, which in the developed world became fashionable in recent times, in my country has been a constant in political discourse for over 80 years. The problem is that social justice is not just, and it doesn't contribute either to the general well-being. Quite on the contrary, it's an intrinsically unfair idea because it's violent. It's unjust because the state is financed through tax and taxes are collected coercively. Here's some more of what he had to say about social justice. Those who promote social justice, the advocates, start with the idea that the uh, whole economy is a pie that can be shared differently. But that pie is not a given. It's wealth that is generated in what Israel Kirzner, for instance, calls a market discovery process. If the goods or services offered by a business are not wanted, the uh, business will fail unless it adapts to what the market is demanding. If they make a good quality product at an attractive price, they will do well and produce more. So the market is a discovery process in which the uh, capitalists will find the right path as they uh, move forward. But if the state punishes capitalists when they're successful and gets in the way of the discovery process, they will destroy their incentives. And the consequence is that they will produce less, the pie will be smaller, and this will harm society as a whole. All right, Jess, so some pretty heavy, harsh words against social justice there. Do you think that his uh, views of social justice align with what you might say social justice is, or is it something different? Yeah, I mean, in my mind, social justice and the economic system a country has are two very different political phenomena. To say that you're coupling having a, a socialist or collectivist economy with social justice efforts, those two things are just not one and the same. I know plenty of working Americans that are entirely fed up with the reality that the bottom 50% of the country has just 2.6% of the nation's wealth. When you have this kind of wealth disparity, the, the fact that you can defend uh, the system of capitalism as being so much better than a, a collectivist or a more socialist society is absurd. When you have a greater distribution of wealth in a lot of these socialist countries, you can think of Scandinavian countries, countries like Belgium and Moldova, where you look at the Gini coefficient, you look at the distribution of income as measured, and it's nearly half of what you see in the United States as far as how much we differentiate from the Lawrence curve, which is our measure of you know, a, a perfectly uh, distributed wealth in a country. Uh, of course, there's no country that has perfect distribution of wealth, but the United States, when you have just 2.6% and the bottom 50%, you have the majority of the country having almost no economic control. When you see stagnation of wages and no sharing of profits with workers in these companies, that is an entirely different issue from the kinds of social justice issues where you're fighting for LGBTQ plus rights. You can have someone who is terribly racist, unfortunately, but is someone who believes that the workers should have their fair share. If they're working to produce something of value in the economy, it's being sold and someone's making a profit, they deserve a cut of that profit. When we think of the corporate structure we have in the United States, it's not this kind of scenario where the venture capitalist or the entrepreneur participating in the free market is the person that is incentivized to run a successful business. Oftentimes it's shareholders that are reaping the benefits and the person that's the head of the company is paid a set salary in order to run it. 
they're not incentivized by profits to, to run the company. Perhaps they get a bonus, but they are not getting what the shareholders are getting. And so this kind of structure where you have, you know, the top 50 percent, uh, you can even say the top 20 percent that are shareholders and companies reaping the benefits of all of the workers labor in the economy. That is unfair. That's something that, that you can fight even if you disagree with everything else that social justice warriors are fighting for. Yeah, I would push back on the idea that entrepreneurs aren't incentivized to build companies. I mean, your example holds if you're talking about a CEO who was installed of a mega corporation that already existed. But when you're talking about building something from the ground up, yes, if you go public, shareholders get involved, but you also have the opportunity to sell your company for a huge profit. And there's also a, a huge value, I think, that people get out of being productive citizens, as well as feeling like they've been able to build something with their own two hands, with their own ingenuity, and provide a service to people. But let's go a little bit broader on this question of socialism versus capitalism. Javier Millet is 100% correct that capitalism has 100% lifted the most people in history out of poverty. Wealth inequality is uh, a given in any system, even in the so-called socialist systems that you mentioned. Those countries have large social safety nets but by definition are, are generally not what we would consider socialism or socialistic. Um, they still allow people to work in jobs that they want. They still allow so social mobility. It's not an entirely take and redistribute economy in the sense that we would normally think of socialism. But I agree in some sense that the United States uh, has too much income inequality. And, and the pushback on that would be that it's not a zero-sum game, the economy. People can get wealthier together, a rising tide lifts all boats. But generally, income inequality does lead to other social ills that are not great. It can lead to more crime. It can lead to resentment between the classes and class warfare and a lot of instability. Um, so I would agree with you that income inequality generally is a problem but not in the sense that the people at the bottom in America are somehow so much worse off than people around the globe. America is still an incredibly wealthy uh, country with a very high standard of living. Our poor are incredibly better off than anywhere else pretty much around the world with the exception of a few European countries that have a larger social safety net. We also have to consider that those countries are very uh, have a much smaller population and are very homogenous in terms of culture and demographics. The United States has a much harder time providing the same programs that these countries do simply by sheer size, as well as the fact that our country is so stratified across race, class, religion, et cetera. Um, so I think that's one of the reasons why those countries fare much better with the systems that they have. Um, but generally speaking, capitalism, it cannot be denied, has been a great benefit to the vast majority of people who live under a capitalist system. Yes, if anyone wants to hear more of my thoughts on the economic system we have in the United States and the one we should have, you can watch my TED Talk. But if anyone wants to hear more of Mile's thoughts on social collectivism from the Economic World Forum, we have that for you too. Let's watch. Given the dismal failure of collectivist models and the undeniable advances in the free world, socialists were forced to change their agenda. They left behind the class struggle based on the economic system and replaced this with other supposed social conflicts which are just as harmful to life as a community and to economic growth. The first of these new battles was the ridiculous and unnatural fight between man and woman.
Libertarianism already provides for equality uh, of these sexes. The uh, cornerstone of our creed says that all humans are created equal, that we all have the same unalienable rights granted by the Creator, including uh, life, freedom, and ownership. All that this radical feminism agenda has led to is greater state intervention to hinder the economic process, giving a job to bureaucrats who have not contributed anything to society. Examples, um, ministries of, of women or international organizations devoted to promoting this agenda. Another conflict presented by socialists is that of humans against nature, claiming that we human beings damage the planet, which should be protected at all costs, even going as far as advocating for population control mechanisms or the bloody um, abortion agenda. Fascinating. I love the way he's, he's coupling, really, this, the feminism, the unnatural fight between woman and man, which is a hilarious way to put it. Perhaps there's some translation there that makes this a bit different. I did see someone on Twitter say this is a quite good translation, so... Maybe it is, maybe it's not. Fascinating thing to say nonetheless. I think also framing socialism as something that is unnatural, very fascinating. Adam Smith, who is considered the father of economics and the father of capitalism by some, he theorized that human beings became the dominant species on the planet because we learned to work together and we accomplish more than we could separately. That's why we live in a society. We're social creatures. And so it, it is very natural for human beings to work together I'm always skeptical of someone who argues against something without defining it. So arguing against socialism without really saying what it is. And I think what a lot of people are fighting for economically across the world, which clearly that's what he's referring to, is they, they want a more fair work structure. They are a part of an economy. They shop in the economy. They buy houses in the economy, food, cars. They live within the economy. They have to work within this economy in order to provide for themselves. If they have no choice but to get a job and work for a living, they should have some say in what's produced. They should have some share of what they make with their own two hands while they're at work. That is what a lot of people are fighting for. So making it something else and arguing against that while ignoring the reality of what people really want, what people are fighting for around the world is just very dishonest to me. I would love to tackle his comment about the fight between men and women uh, because I actually completely agree with what he's saying there. So what he's referring to is the idea that feminism has held up men and women, not just as equals in terms of endowed with equality from the creator, but equals in the sense that they are the same. And that's just fundamentally false. Men and women biologically are very, very different people. They have different desires. They have different ways of thinking about the world. They have different wants, different needs. And men and women complement each other. And instead, over the past 20 years, thanks to third wave feminism, we've been fighting each other. We've been trying to jostle for positioning on this apparent scale of social hierarchy instead of accepting our God-given talents and our gifts and the way that we were created and how those things, uh, leaning into those things, can make us happy, productive citizens that work with one another and complement one each other, rather than trying to prove who is better or who needs to be helped or, or raised up or who needs to break the, ga the glass ceiling. So that's what he's referring to there, is this sort of fight that women, in the pursuit of being equal to men, are actually trying to become like men, as opposed to embracing their natural femininity. 
Um, but I, I hope we get to talk about socialism and capitalism and all this more in another segment as well, because obviously we did not even scratch the surface. We'll be back with more Rising after this. New GOP primary polling has Nikki Haley polling ahead of Ron DeSantis, but still far behind former President Donald Trump. Trump is in the lead at 73% post-Iowa, while he was at just 69% pre this week's Iowa caucus. Nikki Haley is taking 14%, whereas she had 12% before Iowa, and DeSantis has 12% up one percentage point from where he stood before the Iowa caucus. Florida Congressman Matt Gates had this to say about some voters in the Republican Party. What I could tell you is like for every Karen we lose, there's a there's a Julio and a Jamal ready to sign up for the MAGA movement. And that abodes well for our ability to be more diverse and to be more durable as we head into. Not Matt Gates gatekeeping the Republican Party. Uh, I think that they have the Karens on lock. I don't know if he needs to say that. I thought that uh, among white women voters, Republicans were doing quite well. I don't know if he's alienating some Karens by saying that. Who is he talking about, Amber, when he says Karen's there? Am I missing something? Yeah, he's talking about suburban white women, which have sort of left the party uh, during the Trump phenomenon. And this is a demographic that votes pretty consistently. Um, So they've been trying to figure out ways to keep them in the party. Um, A lot of them are quite turned off by Trump's rhetoric. A lot of them are pro-choice. And so in the aftermath of the Dobbs decision, it was sort of, uh, I guess, the prevailing theory that it was suburban white women and young people who had cost Republicans this red wave in the 2022 midterm elections. But just some basic math for Matt Gates: you can't just abandon suburban white women if you want to win elections. Um, if you're talking about the Julios and Jamals, as he put it, black men and Hispanic men, then you're looking at about 15% of the population. White women make up something like 35 to 40% of the population. Uh, So you're not going to make up numbers just by having a slight increase in the percentage of black or Hispanic male voters for Trump um, if a bunch of white women flee the party. So just from a a campaign strategy standpoint, this, this is not the right way to go, I think. I mean, obviously, Republicans want to appeal to a broad working class coalition, but you shouldn't view any voter as disposable. It's a huge mistake. Yeah, that sounds right to me. That's something that the Democratic Party has done as well. I think it's a unique situation this election because you have you know, Trump getting around 73%, but then when you look at what Nikki Haley and uh, DeSantis are getting right now, if those voters ultimately don't vote for Donald Trump in the general election and they go for an RFK Jr. type candidate, an independent, I don't really know that we'll see many people go over to vote for Joe Biden. We might see them sit it out, though. I think that would be detrimental for the Matt Gates faction. And that's exactly why you can't write any voters off if you intend to win, de- win elections. And I think it, this kind of a strategy could cost Donald Trump this election. Based on how we saw things go in 2020, he didn't get a lot of votes where he needed them in order to win. He didn't get the necessary votes in in states. I think he just counted that he would win again. And in counties that he he counted would be voting for him again. That's something that, you know, Democrats have made that mistake as well. But this time around, when you have such a viable, you know, third, fourth party candidate, you've got to be way more careful about how you run and make sure that if you have an alienating candidate like Donald Trump, the strategy brings some of those formerly alienated voters in. 
Yeah, I think the good news for Trump is that the polling out of Iowa did suggest that Republicans were more likely to sort of vote in line with their party if Trump were the nominee versus someone like DeSantis or Haley. They were both sitting at about 30% of Republican voters who would defect and ultimately not vote for them in the general election versus about 19% who said that they would not ultimately vote for Donald Trump. So if it's a comparison game, Trump is in good hands there in terms of being able to unite the party and bring everyone back into the fold. Um, but that being said, there is a lot of bad blood between DeSantis, hardcore DeSantis supporters and members of the DeSantis campaign and the Trump campaign. Um, members or surrogates for Trump have sort of suggested that they're keeping a list of who went to work for DeSantis. They branded some of them traitors. And there's actually this amazing article in Politico this morning about the failures of the DeSantis campaign, calling it one of the worst in history. And this is from a couple of GOP strategists. And they say that one of the problems is that the candidate did not match the hype. In person, he was a diminutive politician. The campaign introduced him to the nation as a bright but socially awkward introvert, a nerd who did not enjoy people, which was a problem since voters tend to be people, <laughs> which is just sort of an all-time line. Um, but I mean, we've been talking about the DeSantis campaign on this show for a long time, and it's and it's many failures from the rollout on Twitter spaces to the fact that they had developed this major ground game in late primary states when it wasn't even clear that he would be able to compete in Iowa, New Hampshire. And although Nikki Haley took a lot of heat last week for saying that it was a two-man race after Iowa, she wasn't incorrect. DeSantis is basically skipping New Hampshire and going straight to South Carolina because he knows he doesn't have a shot in the open primary with independents and Democrats. And Nikki Haley is polling much better there, about seven to 10 points behind the former president. Now, to be clear, I don't think either of them have a chance. Um, calling it a two-man race even then is generous. Uh, but it looks like I think both DeSantis and Haley after New Hampshire are probably going to be dead in the water. Right. I love the point about the personality. It's so important for a candidate to be likable. So many of these guys go on their commercials and they put on their commercial clothes where they dress up like average people. And they're like, hey, I'm Ted Cruz. You just walked in my house on a Sunday. We're having breakfast. This is what I do. Normal people stuff. Brand new fishing equipment. It's weird watching them cosplay as normal people. You can just tell when a candidate lives a pretty normal life and is relatable. So many candidates trying to be personable and trying to be relatable has turned off so many voters than if they were just themselves, even if that's not a particularly likable person. I think people appreciate someone being genuine over someone being fake and trying to be personable. I would rather you be unpersonable and just genuine and we wouldn't have to cringe every time you get on stage. That's Ron DeSantis for me. It's Nikki Haley a little bit too, honestly. But I think in my heart of hearts, I'm just not hopeful that this election will have an outcome that makes me happy, no matter what it is, no matter what way you cut it out of all of the candidates running. I really think we're going to need someone who brings people together all across the country behind a populist message, behind a message of the elites are running our society and the economy, frankly, for their benefit and to our detriment. And anyone who's running for public office that is not running on a policy platform that addresses and changes that, or at least saying that message, I just don't think it's gonna be a candidate that is gonna win a convincing majority that is enough to, to enact the change we need to see that will make people say, wow, I'm glad I voted for them. I think almost every single person that was a young person that voted for Joe Biden, at some point he's disappointed them for one reason or another. I think it's a very small 
group of people that are satisfied with their votes in this country and are happy to vote for the same candidate for, for another term. It's just a very small portion of voters. And so I think until we get that candidate, I'm just going to be dissatisfied with every election result. So watching the Republican Party kind of eat itself and fight within itself, you know, it doesn't even bring me any joy because I'm not hopeful with the Democrats at. <laughs> Yeah, I think a lot of people felt disappointed in Trump's first term, too, especially on um, issues like immigration and crime. I mean, immigration in 2019, he unleashed a bunch of executive orders that did a really great job at securing the border, but he didn't do much to change the legal immigration system, which is something that people were really hopeful for. He issued a couple of temporary pauses during the pandemic, but didn't really go full bore um, in the way that that was hopeful. I mean, his biggest achievement basically during his his tenure was the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, which didn't even permanently um, allow for tax cuts for the middle and working class. Those had to be renewed, while the ones that were in there for the wealthy were permanent, which was so idiotic. And thanks a lot, Paul Ryan. Um, and then I want to go back to your point about politicians being genuine and how important that is, because you mentioned Nikki Haley, of course. She was caught uh, twice sort of insulting voters and suggesting that this is all a game to her. She said first that New Hampshire was there to correct the votes of Iowa. And then in explaining that comment, said that she loves the primary process because you go from Iowa and New Hampshire and you change personalities. And then you go down to South Carolina, which brings it home. Um, and it was just bizarre. Um, and I think that's why people like Trump so much is that, yeah, he's a mega rich, you know, New York real estate guy, and he doesn't pretend to be anything else. He is on the golf course a lot. He plays tennis and he wears suits pretty much everywhere else. 90% of the time that you see him, he is in a suit and he stands in this weird domineering way and he has the very emphatic hand gestures. It's just... I, I don't know another candidate in either party that is like that. I mean, I guess Biden kind of is because he's losing track of where he is. And so inevitably his real self has to come out because he can't even follow a basic script. But um, just in terms of like the last decade, I've never seen a politician like Trump that just genuinely is himself um, in the way that he is on the campaign trail. And it's obviously something that resonates with a lot of people, even those who don't necessarily relate to his station in life, but just appreciate that he's being authentic. Yeah, definitely resonates with voters in Iowa, which we saw this past week. And I think the Iowa caucus, something that Nikki Haley said, insulting the crowd of people uh, that she had to then uh, address her statement to, where she said, it's time for Iowa to, to pass the torch, maybe have the caucus or the first vote in New Hampshire instead. I think if you're an Iowan, you like being the first caucus. I'm in Iowa now, love the great people of Iowa, but there was a case to be made there by Nikki Haley or anyone running that there's really this path dependency of if you do well in Iowa, people like picking winners and are more likely to vote for you in the next states. And Iowa, love it, not representative of the entire country, having another state start for the presidential contest and vote first and potentially pick someone different could be good for the country, but we are living in a reality where Donald Trump did extremely well in Iowa, and he's going to stand to benefit in the following states and the other candidates that are not popular in Iowa, but may have been in other states. Are, are It's kind of to their detriment that Iowa goes first. So we are living in that political reality now as well. We're going to, as always, continue to follow this race as it shapes and unfolds more rising after this.
The judge in Donald Trump's Georgia case has ordered a hearing on the misconduct allegations Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis is facing. It is alleged that she hired her romantic partner as a top prosecutor in the case against the former president. The accusation first came out last week in papers filed by Mark Roman, a Trump 2020 campaign worker who was one of Trump's co-defendants in the Georgia election interference case per The Hill. Roman said the alleged relationship with Fonnie Willis, the prosecutor, and Nathan Wade, who was the top prosecutor on the case, makes this indictment against Donald Trump, quote, fatally defective. But, per The Hill, the filing did not contain any hard proof of the alleged relationship between Willis and Wade. Judge Scott McAfee scheduled the hearing for February 15th. So this is getting messy, and I think Fonnie Willis should have known it would. If you're going to mud wrestle with pigs, you're going to get dirt on you. This is what happens when you get into this kind of legal case with someone with immense resources and immense experience fighting legal cases not so different from this one. And so this is the kind of scenario where if you're not perfectly clean and how you prosecute your well-resourced opponent— something like this is going to to happen. It really sounds like a soap opera when you read about the back and forth of what's going on, the personal relationships and how things are overtwined. I am not someone who is a huge fan of Fonnie Willis. Do I think Donald Trump did not act within the law? I, I really don't think he acted within the law. That doesn't mean I love Fonnie Willis. She's a prosecutor. I am of the thinking that prosecutors are like cops. I just... I don't like people that are a part of the penal state. I have a distrust for them. So I'm happy to criticize Fonnie Willis here. It sounds like she acted inappropriately, but it does seem like, you know, Donald Trump is using this as a reason to say the entire legal case against me is moot. Amber, I'm curious what you make of the recent developments. Yeah, I mean, the evidence that's been presented so far is that this guy filed for divorce on the day he was given this top prosecutor uh, position. Then he was paid something like $650,000 for legal services from the Fulton County's DA's office, and then used that money to go on some very lavish vacations with none other than DA Fonnie Willis. Now, interestingly as well, Fonnie Willis has uh, attacked the estranged wife of this prosecutor, Um, because the uh, estranged wife apparently subpoenaed Fonnie Willis, I assume, as part of the divorce proceedings. And Fonnie Willis says that the estranged wife is trying to obstruct her criminal election interference case against former President Donald Trump. Fonnie Willis also has not denied that there was an affair. She has not denied taking vacations with this guy. Instead, she has claimed that the criticism of her is due to the fact that she is a black woman. She appeared at, uh, I think it was a church event recently, where she went on this weird tirade about how everyone expects black women to be the perfect saviors of the world, and they can't be that. And so at every turn, she is basically trying to flip the script and uh, avoid even addressing the allegations and just claim it's all due to racism, sexism, and politics, which is quite ironic because I think a lot of people would argue that this case itself was only brought because of politics. Um, And let's also consider the fact that she decided to prosecute this under the RICO statutes, which allowed the opportunity for all of these defendants to be tried uh, separately. They've been able to um, 
be able to spread their cases out, which has been a huge advantage to the former president because the people who go into court earlier, um, he's able to watch the case play out. He's able to see what works and what doesn't in front of the judge. Um, so I think she has a lot of soul searching to do. Um, it's quite possible that this uh, romantic relationship, though, would be the downfall of a case like this because of the massive conflict of interest presented between Fonnie Willis and then this special prosecutor that she appointed and paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to, um, where they both have a vested interest in delivering a guilty verdict against a political opponent. Now, the Washington Post, who originally obtained McAfee's order, it seems from what they've written that what's going on here is Fonnie Willis will have to testify and be subpoenaed in Wade's divorce case. And that right. is actually what would disqualify her from currently handling the case. So it's not the kind of situation where there's been some corruption that's been exposed and she'll be disqualified because she's been found to be corrupt, misusing resources, nothing like that. It's actually that she would be subpoenaed to testify in this divorce case. And so that makes this, I think, very ironic. Just if you're not you know, operating your own life in a, a moral way, if there's an alleged affair, if there's any chance there could have been an affair for you to get subpoenaed in a divorce case, I mean, and that gets in the way of you doing your job, step aside. If you're dealing with all of this and it's distracting from the case, find someone else who can potentially do a better job prosecuting. And so, I don't know, at this point, it feels a little bit egotistical for her to stay in this role it's not the kind of scenario where there's public backlash and she's completely innocent. If it was that kind of scenario where they're trying to slander her, you know, without any evidence that she did something wrong, fine. But this seems like the kind of scenario where it, you have this other legal matter that you're going to have to deal with. And that's actually why you can't handle this case. That seems to me pretty fair that you have someone else step up and handle the case. Yeah, I completely agree. I'm very interested to see how the judge rules on this and also whether or not she ends up complying with that subpoena to appear in the divorce proceedings. I mean, typically subpoenas aren't issued without some kind of underlying reason. So just the fact that it's been issued alone is a pretty good indication that this affair probably happened. I mean, even so, if someone is married, the fact that they would be going on lavish vacations with their boss, even if there weren't a romantic entanglement, is so corrupt and just unethical. Um, that that alone should have been disqualifying. I actually found the exact quote that she gave um, at this church, by the way. I think it's worth reading because it's so deranged. She said, you cannot expect black women to be perfect. We need to be allowed to stumble. We need grace. We are all sinners. So, I mean, she's basically saying, because I'm a black woman, I deserve some special uh, consideration for my circumstances or the behavior that I've been involved in. And it's just patently ridiculous. I mean, it has nothing to do with you being a black woman that you have engaged in unethical behavior, that you might be disqualified because you have a conflict of interest because you've been issued a subpoena in another case. This is just being a bad prosecutor and being bad at your job. And I think it actually is a disservice to all the black women out there who are actually doing a good job and are qualified for their positions for her to try to use that as a defense and as a cudgel against her political opponents. Right. If what's written here by the Washington Post is correct, which, you know, I'm going to hope it is, it does seem that the reason she wouldn't be able to handle the case is if she is subpoenaed to testify in this divorce case, which she kind of spoke to a little bit in that same speech at the church in Atlanta, where she described herself as a, a flawed person, imperfect public servant. And she even referenced the loneliness of her position as a reason for why she was with Wade. 
So not being able to meet people outside of work, you find your romantic partner at work. I think any anyone who is in a serious relationship is very skeptical of, sorry, your husband's coworker was lonely and now your marriage is destroyed. It doesn't sit right with me. I think there are some scenarios, absolutely, that we've seen play out recently in the media where you've seen black women treated unfairly. You've seen clear examples of racism in the United States of America. It's alive and well. And when you say that something is racism or sexism when it is not, it really makes it lose weight in the cases where it actually is. It's a disservice to the situations where someone is actually dealing with racism and sexism. And so I think, is that a factor in the Fannie Willis case? Maybe initially it was. Her father was a Black Panther. She was attacked for her family's history there. Sure. But at this point in time, it seems it's very clear that's not what's going on. We're going to continue to follow more rising after this. Today is the March for Life, and thousands of pro-life Americans are making their way to the nation's capital from across the country to continue the fight to defend life. The movement faces new challenges this year as nationwide efforts to protect life uh, take on new hurdles. Pro-life efforts in safely Republican states like Ohio, Kentucky, and Kansas have failed, and 2024 will see several states put pro-abortion policies on the ballot. Moreover, the Biden administration has demonstrated it is deeply opposed to the pro-life movement. Here's Biden yesterday giving this very profound message to the March for Lifers. What's your message to those attending? March. Meanwhile, the Biden administration has planned a rally today in Virginia to defend abortion access with an emphasis on attacking former President Donald Trump over getting Roe v. Wade struck down. Biden campaign manager Julie Chavez Rodriguez released a statement saying Donald Trump is the reason that more than one in three American women of reproductive age don't have the freedom to make their own health care decisions. Now, he and MAGA Republicans are running to go even further if they retake the White House. Trump directly paved the way for Republican extremists across the country to enact draconian bans that are hurting women and threatening doctors, end quote. She continued, in 2024, vote for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris is a vote to restore Roe and a vote for Donald Trump is a vote to ban abortion across the country. Here to discuss the fight over abortion and the March for Life is State Policy Director at Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America, Katie Glenn Daniel. Thank you so much for joining us on Rising. Let's start with the March for Life, which is taking place today in a very snowy D.C. Um, despite the conditions, it looks like there will be a pretty good turnout. Can you give us a, back a little background look at what the theme of this year's March for Life is and how many people you expect to turn out? Well, this year's theme is totally focused on mom and baby. It's with every woman, for every child. And that's our goal at SBA as well, is making sure that whatever a mom needs, we are there to walk with her, to support her, and to say, yes, you can do it. A clear contrast from the Biden administration, who's pushing abortion on everyone for any reason. What do you mean by that, pushing abortion on anyone for any reason? 
As soon as the Dobbs decision came out, the Biden administration said they'd take a whole of government approach to being pro-abortion. Most recently, uh, they're pushing the EMTALA policy that explicitly says that hospitals owe a duty of care to mother and baby, saying the baby doesn't matter, only the mother matters. So that is the type of approach they take to every policy, is forgetting about the child and saying that if there's anything going on in her situation that is not perfect, whether it's financial or emotional support, abortion is the only solution. And recently, the Biden administration has been, uh, through the Department of Justice, or sorry, the Department of Defense, um, been uh, allowing for women to get reimbursements if they travel out of state for abortions, a policy that was fought for quite some time by Senator Tommy Tuberville. Um, can you also address some of the claims of the pro-abortion left that the recent crackdown on abortions, the recent pro-life laws, um, criminalize doctors and women who perform miscarriages or have miscarriages? Every single pro-life law, all 24 of them, allow for care in an emergency situation. It's also important to note that treating a miscarriage is not an elective abortion. In a miscarriage, tragically, that child has died. And so you are treating mom and, and taking care of her child who has passed away. An elective abortion actively ends the life of a healthy child. So there was recently a case out of Texas where there was a woman who was experiencing a kind of condition that would cause the baby to either come stillborn or to die shortly after birth. This would, if carried to term, endanger the mother's chances of having a future pregnancy and the baby's life was deemed not viable based on this condition. And the Texas high courts ruled that she couldn't have an abortion in this case, even though her health was threatened by the pregnancy and the baby was not viable. She has since left to have an abortion out of state. Her lawyers didn't say where, but what do you make of a, a case like this being the result of a ban? Well, Texas law is clear that doctors owe a duty of care to a mom and a baby. This is a horrible situation and we have so much compassion for her. I cannot imagine what it's like to be told that this pregnancy that is so wanted has these challenges, but we've really got to ask, did she get informed consent? In interviews, um, Kate Cox has said that she didn't want her child to feel pain, but we know that after 15 weeks, a baby does feel pain during an abortion. So I really have to ask, did she get informed consent? Did she know what her options were? Did she know that the University of Michigan has a program where they are getting great outcomes for babies with this condition? Um, she deserves compassion and support and, and support for her and her baby. Can you explain what you mean by informed consent? Informed consent is when a doctor has to give you information about what the procedure is, what the outcomes are, what your risks are. And this is something that the abortion industry is terrible at, and they actually actively fight against having to do. Uh, we see this quite a bit in the chemical abortion context, uh, where they're not telling women that the risks and complications of chemical abortion are significantly higher than that of a surgical abortion, or that you can't be ac accurately screened through telemedicine, but they are willing to send you pills through the mail. So it's about making sure that a woman has all the information she needs to make an informed decision. And it's very frequently not happening in the abortion context. What did you make, Katie, of uh, President Joe Biden's response to the March for Life today? He gave a one-word answer, March. He, of course, says that he is personally morally opposed to abortion because he's a Catholic, but he supports pro-abortion policies. 
were you surprised by his answer? And, and what do you think would have been a better one? Well, he is a man of few words at times. And uh, we hope everybody is showing up to March. Uh, they are a reminder that uh, there are many millions of Americans who want to live in a pro-life America and are willing to stand with moms and their babies to do that. Um, I hope that he finds his Catholicism deep in there and that this uh, one word answer was part of that. Um, but really his administration has been key to why the March for Life is so important. Um, the Dobbs decision was a seminal moment for the pro-life movement, but we are not done. Uh, we are not done making abortion unthinkable and we are not done standing with moms and their babies. I'm curious based off of what you said, you know, standing with moms and their babies, you say, you know, you are pro-life. In Katie Cox's case in, in Texas, if there was informed consent, if she was aware, you know, that there might be a period of, of pain for the baby through this procedure, knowing that the baby would ultimately be a stillbirth or die within hours of being born, and that this would jeopardize her chance of, of having babies in the future. She already has two. She's a proud mother, wanted to have a third. What do you make of this? If she had informed consent in this scenario, would you deem this a situation where medical abortion was required for the mother's life and her future children's life? Well, Texas law has said that they protect mom and baby. They also allow for care in an emergency situation. So in this case, um, her doctor went into court and didn't even argue that there was an emergency. Um, her doctor said, we need to change the law so that I can perform an abortion that is currently against the law, not because of a medical emergency. They did not claim there was one, um, but because that's what the doctor wanted to do. And we've seen a calculated effort by abortion doctors who have lost out on a whole bunch of money since Texas's law took effect in pushing for that. So, you know, we have compassion for her. It is a horrible situation, uh, but elective abortion is not the answer to these heartbreaking cases. Just a quick follow-up. The Katie Cox went to a different doctor re to receive the abortion in a different state. So it sounds like this was more her decision than just her doctor's. If the baby's not going to be viable anyway, I'm, I'm not sure why carrying the baby to term would be what you would want the law to be. Well, the challenge of these situations is that often we don't know. Uh, these tests are unreliable at times. The New York Times has reported on that. Uh, what Texas is doing is pushing for a culture of life and saying our doctors need to be doing everything they can to support a mom and a baby. Both of them are owed a duty of care. Um, that is what these pro-life laws are doing while also acknowledging that sometimes there are heartbreaking cases where you cannot save both lives. In those cases, um, an emergency abortion can be done. Texas data shows 34 of them have been done. Um, but the situation here is one where she deserved information about the care that her child could receive, um, not being pushed towards another state with lax abortion laws. That's a good point about these tests being unreliable, these prenatal tests, Katie, because I know several women who um, were told that their babies were either non-viable or would be born with some disability and then they ended up perfectly healthy. So I can't imagine um, the cases where someone had gone through an elective abortion when it turns out the test could have been wrong. Um, one final question for you, and then we have to wrap, but uh, of course, Kamala Harris and Joe Biden say that they're going to go on this um, sort of pro-abortion tour as the March for Life is going on. Um, from the pro-life side of this, what is coming next in this coming year? What is next on the docket for the pro-life movement? What are their areas of focus? Are there any pieces of legislation that we should be keeping our eye on? 
We are more focused than ever on expanding the pro-life safety net, meeting women where they are, helping identify those needs. Uh, many of our states doubled and tripled uh, the amount of state funding they spend supporting moms and babies. Um, they're expanding access to healthcare opportunities. So there are many exciting policies to help meet women where they are and, and walk with them and say, you can have your baby. A recent study showed that two thirds of post-abortive women surveyed said, if something was different, either emotionally or financially in my life, I would have kept my baby. I did not want this abortion. I felt I had no choice. We wanna stand with those two thirds of women and help them so that they can have their baby. Thank you, Katie Glenn Daniel, for joining us today on Rising. Thank you. Ganja, marijuana, whatever you call it, it's likely on its way towards legalization. But while getting people on the side to legalize the drug, it's seemingly easier than ever. A new article from The American Prospect by Robert Kuttner actually argues that when it comes to marijuana, the current status quo is the worst of both worlds. Unregulated weed cornered by capitalists while medical use is still heavily red taped. Federal drug officials have begun moving towards reclassifying pot as a lower risk drug at the federal level, marijuana is classified as a schedule one drug on the same level as heroin and MDMA, which means it's a substance of high abuse potential and no accepted medical use. Even with that classification, 38 states have weed legal for medicinal purposes. But some argue that every little thing is not all right when it comes to marijuana. Increasing amounts of the chemical THC in modern weed is causing alarm as reports of growing psychosis amongst younger users is tied to the drug. The Wall Street Journal released a chart showing that marijuana usage gave a more than 40% chance of developing permanent bipolar disorder or schizophrenia after a drug-induced psychosis episode, to which conservative commentator Sagar and Jetty quit, just a plant, bro. Here to discuss this article in the future of marijuana in America is the co-founder and co-editor of the American Prospect and professor at Brandeis University's Heller School, Robert Kuttner. Welcome to the show, professor. Great. Thanks for having me. It's just Bob. So why don't you well, uh, walk us through, rather, the current landscape with marijuana? I think most people are quite shocked that it's on the same level of heroin and MDMA, but given the, the recent data on how much THC is in marijuana and the quality of the marijuana that's available on the market, what do you make of you know, the federal laws taking this precaution of keeping it potentially as a, a Schedule One substance? So here's the problem. Let me try to summarize a complicated situation. Um, as you said, it's still classified Schedule One. Now, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, has just said that based on their study, it really should be Schedule uh, 3, which is the same as other high-powered prescription drugs. However, the Drug Enforcement Administration, which has always fought any kind of marijuana legalization, still insists that it needs to be uh, kept as a Schedule 1 drug. And they actually succeeded in bottling up this report for five months, and it took a Freedom of Information request to pry the report loose. So you've got two government agencies at odds with each other. And meanwhile, as you indicated, um, while marijuana exists in this kind of semi-legal limbo, where it's very easy to get in, in 38 states, and it's not just for medicinal uses. I mean, pot shops are springing up like weeds. But during this period, 
the growers have gotten more and more sophisticated at producing pot with a higher and higher level of THC, which really can be dangerous, which ironically lends credence to the kind of reefer madness view that the DEA has, uh, has always espoused. And so the way to fix this is pretty simple. You, you have the Food and Drug Administration certify the potency uh, of marijuana and have it be legally for sale, some of it for recreational purposes, some of it for uh, you know, medical purposes, and that way consumers know what the hell they're getting. That would put marijuana on the same footing as, uh, as alcohol. But we are uh, a long way from that, and how we get from here to there is going to take a lot of fancy footwork. How do you prevent, uh, with legalization efforts, the ability of cartels to operate under the guise of, of being state-sanctioned? For example, in Colorado, reporters who have been following the legalization of marijuana there point out that basically the cartels come in, they undercut the state-sanctioned weed with lower prices, and so you end up having this weed with higher levels of THC that's also cheaper, which leads to the proliferation of potentially more dangerous substances. Yeah, that's why you need to regulate it. I mean, you know, you have moonshine liquor, but for the most part, uh, people buy booze at, at, at liquor stores or at convenience stores, and the, the alcohol content of, al uh, you know, alcoholic drinks is regulated, and you have a lot of problem with alcoholism, but one of the reasons for that is not that you're getting adulterated alcohol or alcohol that's more potent than you think it is. And I think that's a that's a good analogy. And if if this were regulated, and uh, growers were certified by the government as legitimate growers, and the potency of pot that was on retail sale was certified, then I think there would be less of a market for the stuff that the cartel is peddling, even if it were a little cheaper. And there's no reason for, for why marijuana can't be very cheap. It's cheap to grow. Uh, it, it, retail marijuana should be cheap. And so the, the cartel probably could not, or the cartels probably could not uh, undercut pricing very much. And I think most users would, would trade knowledge of the potency and the safety for slightly cheaper street weed. I think that makes perfect sense to me. I used to live in Los Angeles and yeah, the marijuana that they have on the market there is much stronger than the stuff we would get in the tri-state area when I was a kid. It's it's scary when you talk about the kind of psychosis and mental effects. I think many people say breathing on manual. That's what we say on TikTok when you ingest a little bit too much. And it's not so different if you think about it from alcohol. Uh, when you think about, you know, young kids getting access to alcohol, drinking way too much, it's, it's poisonous for your body. It's related to all kinds of health, uh, you know, diseases later in life. It's been known to be a carcinogen. And so when I think about the treatment of alcohol being so differently from marijuana, it doesn't make much sense. It does make sense to me, as you're saying, to have a regulation of, of the potency here. I guess my question would be, do you have any ideas for how we would prevent extremely large corporations from, from dominating the marijuana market as we've seen with so many other agricultural industries and that really reducing ultimately the quality as well. We kind of have an opportunity to start from ground zero in some ways with marijuana here. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, yeah, two comments. Um, I, I think that's where antitrust comes in. I mean, we've seen a revival of antitrust enforcement 
the the uh, government just blocked a proposed merger of uh, Spirit Airlines uh, with, with JetBlue and uh, the big platform monopolies, uh, Apple and Google and Microsoft are under attack by the antitrust authorities. It's not in anybody's interest to have a few corporations uh, roll up the marijuana market. Uh, but let me make another point. This is just incredibly ironic. I mean, I'm older than you are. And when I was young, um, and, you know, you could get pot on the street, you'd be taking a risk. Uh, I mean, there were over 10 million marijuana arrests as late as, as 10 years ago. And so you were taking a risk that you might go to jail, but but people took the risk. But in those years, um, even though it wasn't regulated at all, the kind of weed that you could buy on the street wasn't all that powerful. And we all made fun of the the, the 1936 movie Reefer Madness that portrayed marijuana as a gateway drug to heroin and it would ruin your life. That, that might have been true of LSD if you took too much, but it certainly wasn't true of marijuana. And we made fun of the narcs who were, you know, obsessed with marijuana. So here we are several decades later, and ironically, the kind of reefer madness people who, who were worried about uh, pot doing damage to ordinary users have been partly vindicated because the stuff has gotten so potent and nobody is certifying exactly what's in it. And so if we want to get back to a place where we can legalize it, where people who enjoy it or people who need it for medical purposes can safely use it, this is not rocket science. You just need to regulate the stuff and certify its potency. And the problem is because you've got two different federal agencies at odds with each other, and you've got the feds at odds with the states getting from here to there, even though it's perfectly sensible when we talk about this, it is going to be, it's going to be very tricky. It's not going to happen overnight. If you had to make a guess, which federal agency do you think will win out? Well, you know, Biden just pardoned a whole bunch of people who were doing prison time for for simple possession. And my guess is that Biden is going to side with the FDA. I certainly hope so. And it, it isn't just the FDA, by the way. The, the, the person who finally released the report is the Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services, who heads the public health service. So he's senior to the FDA and said, yeah, this, this should be a Schedule Three drug. We should regulate it. He didn't go so far as I'm going as saying we should certify its potency and then regulate its, its, its sale. But I think that's where this has to logically lead unless we want to get into this terrible situation where um, it's semi-legal, but in this gray area, Nobody knows what the potency is, and corporations are taking over. This makes sense right, to thank me. You so policy much. in this country going in the direction where it makes sense. You know, it's a rarity. Thank you so much for coming on and breaking this down for us. Thanks for having me. We're rising up. Are we still calling it cheating anymore? Maybe that's too judgy. Instead, now we're saying ethically non-monogamous. The View's Sonny Hostin made a series of baffling claims about people engaging what is essentially sanctioned infidelity, saying people engaged in the practice were more evolved than the rest of us. Watch. 
Get I it. can barely handle one. I can't. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, I, I, I know that these people are more evolved than I am. I'm more cavewoman in my relationships. Like, you are mine. <laughs> like, that's more me. But what I don't understand is, like, some of these people are married, have children, yeah. and have jobs. Busy. How do you have the time Everybody. to do that with, let alone one man, yeah. several men or women? Like, they are not only more evolved than I am, they have more energy. Well, maybe to get the energy they need, they need to do those things, because life is draining. I don't and really have time for date night, but um, I personally, to me, like, why not just be single? Confused? Me too. Though some conservative commentators have begun to notice a pattern emerging when it comes to either pushing or pursuing so-called polyamory. The Daily Wire's Matt Walsh noted that three separate major media publications all put out positive stories on relationships involving multiple people, arguing that this is the next frontier in the war on the nuclear family. I've seen these stories, Jessica, and I have to say I always feel for the kids involved in this situation. I can't imagine what it must feel like to find out that your parents are sleeping around with other people and the complications that that might bring to a, a normal a family life at home, especially in the cases where these parents end up getting involved with the parents of their kids' friends. It just all seems very messy. I mean, there is study after study that shows the nuclear family uh, with parents who get along and are monogamous is the best way to raise healthy and mentally well children. And so it just seems very selfish to me um, when parents of all people get involved in these types of supposedly ethically non-monogamous relationships. Yeah, I think it, we have a lot of single mothers. We have a lot of divorce in the country. I think a lot of people who go the route of polyamory are people who consider themselves promiscuous. They don't want to have only one sexual or romantic partner. A lot of people, you know, are only polyamorous when it comes to sex. Some people are only polyamorous when it comes to romance. Uh, some people do both. It's very different based on the person. To me, anyone I've met who, who goes on this path tends to be someone who has cheated in the past. They consider themselves someone who just wants to do relationships differently, where they have multiple sexual partners. They think that they're not meant to only have one. And so I can see a world where there is an ethical arrangement and it's not cheating and, you know, both partners agree, both partners are down for it, both partners are happy. It's just, it doesn't always end up that way. I can understand people's thinking going into it, but I would never do it myself. Um, not only because I'm definitely the type of person that only has eyes for one person when I like them and I expect the same of my partner if we're going to be in a relationship together. If not, just be single. I think polyamory is kind of this alternative to what we used to have, which was uh, my mom's perspective and her generation. You're single until you're married, until you have a ring. You know, you're not not a taken woman. And so things got a little bit different once we started to get into long-term serious relationships without that kind of lifelong commitment. And maybe some people aren't ready for that. And so I think polyamory is potentially also the product of some people not wanting to get into a long-term loyal relationship and wanting to date around, but doing it over a longer period of time, it seems to me that it's not a threat to the nuclear family, just a different way people are approaching dating. I don't understand it because I don't do it, but that's my take from the people I know that are exploring it. Yeah, I guess I have more sympathy if it's done prior to marriage when people are dating around, so to speak. But I feel like once you're in a marriage that, or a long-term relationship and you decide to open the relationship, um, 
retroactively, you're basically just asking for resentment and for that relationship to fail miserably, especially if you both go into it believing that you're going to be monogamous. And I don't understand Sonny Hostin's comments that this is more evolved somehow. I mean, just from a historical standpoint, it used to be the case that people were actually much more openly philandering and that the nuclear family with one mom, one dad who were monogamous and committed to one another was a way of proving that we weren't slaves to our human selfish sexual desires and that we were capable of just committing to one person. And the whole point of establishing a marriage was, I mean, besides obviously the religious aspect, which is a separate conversation we can have another time. But from a sociological standpoint, marriage was intended to be a contract such that man and woman could share duties in raising children and do it in a way that was best for each other and they could trade off responsibilities. So, I mean, the reason that you would ask your partner to be monogamous is one, to prevent the spread of STDs and and other illnesses, two, to prevent your partner from having a child with someone else that would take their time and resources away from helping to raise your children. And then also just to share love and companionship with one another and to devote that only to one other person. Um, so, I, I mean, just from the the term ethical alone, the idea that it would be ethical um, to take away time, resources, love from your partner, from your children, um, just doesn't compute with me. Yeah, I think what's going on here is Matt Walsh is maybe more concerned about the threat to the nuclear family then he should be. It's also, in my opinion, who cares? You know, if someone wants to, you know, be a gay household and raise kids that way, that's fine. I care way more about the attention and quality of care that the kid is getting than the gender of the people raising them. If you can be a present mom or dad and also have a polyamorous relationship where you're seeing other people, great. If you guys can work that out and give the kid the full attention they need to be you know, a full adult who gets the care that they need from home, the nurturing they need, the education and resources they need. I'm like totally cool with it. But I do really think polyamory is more popular among young people. I agree that I don't see it as something that's more evolved, but I definitely see it as an alternative to mm, this kind of F-boy era of people just cheating when they don't want to be loyal to someone. So saying, hey, like I'm not the type of person that wants to do that right now. And if you're not okay with that, you can be like, no. So there's still also this incentive for people to lie. But I think it's a bit of an alternative to people who are seemingly emotionally damaged. I really think that's why people tend to cheat and be dishonest in relationships. They've got some trauma to work through. But they can do that in therapy or on their own. That's none of my business. But I think like when you're hurting other people, if you're going to take this route of trying to be ethical and say, hey, I can't just be with one person. I think that's better than cheating but I would never pursue a relationship like that. I just can't imagine that there would ever be a situation where a polyamorous relationship in a marriage did not damage the kids. Um, I mean, the, the way that we understand how to give and receive love is very much a reflection of our, relation, our parents' relationship, um, their romantic relationship and what we see, what we're raised with, and then also our relationship with our parents and whether we have a good relationship with them. And the idea that a child would see their parents going off with other people and essentially 
betraying their significant other on a regular basis, I just can't imagine that that child would be able to grow up and have a view of a healthy monogamous relationship in a way that's best oriented towards having a marriage and uh, raising a family to, to produce healthy children. It seems like a vicious cycle to me. And I mean, research has backed up the idea that a two-parent household where the parents are monogamous with one another is the best way to raise a healthy child. I mean, we see repeatedly that parents who argue a lot, parents who cheat, parents who are not home um, as much as they should be, single parents produce worse outcomes in terms of raising healthy kids. So I just think it would be a dereliction of duty for us as a society to at all in any way encourage the breakdown of that traditional structure that has just been proven over and over again to rear the best kids. We're gonna have to leave this here. We've got more rising after this. Seemingly confirming what was apparently an open secret in South Carolina, new reporting from the Daily Mail alleges former governor and current GOP hopeful Nikki Haley had affairs with her communications consultant and a married lobbyist prior to becoming the Palmetto State's chief executive. Two eyewitnesses, Will Folks and Larry Merchant, signed affidavits in 2010, alleging they had a sexual relationship with Haley before she went on to become governor. Haley has previously denied the affairs, though GOP insiders in South Carolina allege the affairs were, quote, brazen and widely known. So, Jessica, this, um, as as mentioned in, in the opener, were considered open secrets in South Carolina that Nikki Haley had been philandering around the state with uh, members of her of her party um, before becoming governor. And I've even heard allegations that it continued while she was governor. Now, her husband uh, is in the military and is deployed on occasion, which would give her opportunity. Of course, legally, you have to be careful about what you say. She has denied the affairs. But this Daily Mail report apparently has access to these 2010 sworn affidavits that were previously um, not available to the public. And in addition, they talked to people from South Carolina who claimed that this was basically uh, done quite brazenly. Uh, This is a quote from the Daily Mail article. Multiple GOP insiders told DailyMail.com that they were intimately aware of Haley's infidelity as a South Carolina lawmaker, including tales of steamy liaisons in the back of her Cadillac SUV canoodling in her lover's laps at bars and nights spent together in a Columbia, South Carolina duplex. Um, The 2010 affidavits, um, including the one from folks, say that he engaged in an inappropriate physical relationship that included numerous instances of inappropriate sexual conduct, says he first kissed Haley in a car in early 2007 and that they had regular trysts in her apartment in downtown Columbia, and the allegations go on, but this is also not the first time that we have heard about allegations that she has been unfaithful to her husband. Pedro Gonzalez reported, I think over a year ago, um, that she had allegedly been having an affair with Corey Lewandowski, who, or sorry, I'm thinking of Christine Ohm. Um, That is not Nikki Haley, but uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, I digress. Christine Ohm was accused of having a, an affair with uh, Corey Lewandowski, who was one of her top advisors. But these South Carolina trysts are apparently, again, an open secret. And I just am kind of baffled that it took this long for them to really be reported publicly. Previously, these affidavits were only covered in very specific local media outlets in South Carolina. 
I don't know if the media was concerned about being sued or maybe Boeing just had their missiles trained on any opposition researcher in politics um, over the past two decades. Um, but uh, it seems like, of course, an opportune time for this to drop now as she's closing the gap on Donald Trump in New Hampshire, supposedly, and is trying to uh, take the nomination away from him. But uh, I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> are, are you surprised to hear about this, Jessica? And do you think uh, the accusations are more likely than not? Or, I mean, what's your take on it? I would say the accusations are more likely than not, in my opinion, when you get this kind of firsthand testimony on the record about the affair happening and people saying things like, well, it was completely out in the open. So it sounds like there's no hesitation for going on the record and saying this. Of course, you know, when there's cases where the accusations are false and, and people repeat them and they say them to the media, there's the potential for a defamation lawsuit. And the fact that these sources were so confident that they were willing to, to go to the papers, to the press and say, actually, no, this happened a ton. We all saw it was open, we thought. I think it's the kind of scenario where Nikki Haley hadn't quite made her mental calculation of what her political ambitions would be and was kind of living the high life of a, you know, she was a lob or not a lobby. She was on the board of Boeing. She was making a ton of money with her career in politics. And it seems if this is true, living kind of recklessly, that kind of a vibe is pretty common for people who are in politics. So I'm not that surprised at all. But it definitely doesn't match the kind of image Nikki Haley has tried to put out about herself. I don't think she wanted to come off as this kind of high roller who made a bunch of money in politics and was living fast and loose, so to speak. But I will say the only thing that would really, you know, hurt her with this coming out is the fact that women are held to a different standard. Of course, Donald Trump has said a bunch of sexual things, has been sexually promiscuous, is on his second marriage, has married someone who is an immigrant. You know, he's said all kinds of things that make us believe he was also living fast and loose, but women are definitely held to a different standard, especially in, in conservative eyes and conservative circles. So I can really see this, you know, potentially hurting her because of that double standard. Yeah, I feel like for me, it's a little bit less about her being a woman and more about the potential hypocrisy here, because if the allegations are true, then she was engaging in this behavior while her husband was off serving his country, which is especially despicable. And she also has said that the reason she's running for president is because of her husband. I mean, she talks repeatedly about what a family woman she is. And even just to contrast that with Trump, I mean, it's obviously well known that he is pretty much a philanderer. Um, but he has, I, I don't think, ever really gone on the campaign trail and tried to use his marriage or his family or, or tout himself as a family traditional values man in order to advance his political career. And so that's why this would be particularly brazen. In fact, one of the men who claims to have had this relationship with her signed the affidavit. Um, well, for one, they both have very specific dates, locations, details about what happened. So he says, after a night together of dinner and drinks with other participants of a conference, uh, Congresswoman Haley and I returned to the hotel together. We went back to her room where we had sexual intercourse and I spent the remainder of the evening. I left her room at approximately 6 a.m. And he continues, I came forward publicly only after being contacted by the press and after hearing Haley claim that she had been 100% faithful to her husband 
in response to the folks allegations when I knew her statements were absolutely false. So basically sounds like one guy came forward. Um, this, uh, this affair was alleged in the press. She claimed it was totally false. She was 100% faithful. And so then a second guy came out, which always happens when you lie about these things, right? You always anger the other people that you are, that you have allegedly done these things with. He comes forward and signs this affidavit and says, here's exactly what happened. I was involved with Nikki Haley too. Um, and I came forward because I can't deal with the fact that she was lying about this publicly. It's also important, um, going back to the Fonnie Willis case, very similar situation here. Marchant apparently divorced uh, in 2013 and his wife cited the alleged affair with Nikki Haley in the court papers. So there's a long paper trail of her allegedly being involved with this man, um, but has denied it for years. And I just think it's pretty stunning that this didn't um, get more play when she first announced her run for president. I think maybe then people didn't take her as seriously than after a couple of decent debate performances polling pretty well in New Hampshire. Maybe people felt like this was the right time to bring this up again. Um, I think it was pretty universally agreed upon when she first launched her campaign that this was all just an effort to get donors, infrastructure, um, email list up for 2028 when she would have a serious run. Then she found herself being kind of successful, gaining a bit in the polls and felt like um, she was gonna actually take a real run at this thing, actually try to take out Donald Trump but may have destroyed her personal life and political career in the process because she got a little bit over out ahead of her skis, so to speak. Um, so I'm curious to see if she responds to this. I don't think she has yet, um, but the affidavits are all linked in this Daily Mail piece. I mean, I definitely am going to dig in and read them in full um, as soon as we we uh, get off of this this program because the allegations are pretty bombastic. Right, her history of, of denying what people have testified that she has done, right? There are sworn affidavits. There's now additional people going to the press saying they saw what went down. I think it's going to be one of those situations where it's a conversation between two married people and they're going to be like, all right, how do we want to handle this? What's going to happen going forward? If her husband didn't know about this and is upset about this, I can see this becoming a much bigger problem for her political career. If this is a kind of scenario where they've already sorted it out between themselves, I can see things moving forward, you know, for Nikki Haley, where she tries to put it behind her. But it seems that there are enough people that care about infidelity and care about dishonesty. I really think you're right in saying her being dishonest to the American voter is is really what is going to have her in hot water over these allegations. Uh, Donald Trump has a tendency to kind of just say the quiet part out loud and admit to doing things even when he pleads not guilty in a court of law. So a bit of a different relationship with his questionable sexual conduct than uh, Nikki Haley apparently will have with the voters she's supposedly accountable to. But we're definitely going to continue to follow this story, especially with everyone having cheating on their mind with Ariana Grande's new songs coming out. More rising after this. A new report from the Department of Justice reveals more of the horrific failures in the Uvalde, Texas school shooting incident. Attorney General Merrick Garland gave a presser announcing the results of the investigation. Let's listen. But within minutes of arriving inside the school, officials on scene transitioned from treating the scene as an active shooter situation to treating the shooter as a barricaded subject. This was the most significant failure.
That failure meant that law enforcement officials prioritized the protracted evacuation of students and teachers in other classrooms instead of immediately rescuing the victims trapped with the active shooter. It meant that officials spent time trying to negotiate with the subject instead of entering the room and confronting him. It meant that officials asked for and waited for additional responders and equipment instead of following generally accepted active shooter practice and moving toward the shooters, shooter with the resources they had. It meant waiting for a set of keys to open the classroom door which the report concludes was likely unlocked anyway. And it meant that the victims remained trapped with a shooter for more than an hour after the first officers arrived on scene. In response to Garland's findings, the Biden administration called for more gun control. Writing in a statement, Congress must now pass common sense gun safety laws to ensure that mass shootings like this one don't happen in the first place. We need universal background checks, we need a national red flag law, and we must ban assault weapons in high capacity magazines. The families of Uvalde and all American communities deserve nothing less. The longer we wait to take action, the more communities like Uvalde will continue to suffer due to this epidemic of gun violence. The lawyer representing the families of those killed by the Uvalde shooter also called for gun control, arguing that if there had been such policies in place, the tragedy never would have happened. Let's watch. This shooting doesn't happen if our government had just listened to these families, or if, if and not just our government, but if the state of Texas had just even done the paltry thing of making it, even raising the, raising the age to 21, they would all be alive. And isn't that such a small price to pay? I don't know. I don't know if we can get into that hypothetical, Amber, and say that if this law was in place, this never would have happened. We know that a lot of the guns used in shooter situations where you have a mass shooting, you know, the gun was obtained in extra legal ways. And so, you know, as much as I, I want to be like, yeah, we have a solution for this terrible problem. We have a solution that will prevent children from being killed. I think it is lazy to say that restrictions on gun purchasing with an age restriction is what will do it. We've had shooters that are over the age of 20 years old. To say that this is one fix-all solution is just dishonest. We've seen other countries, Australia, try the gun buyback approach to try and get less guns off of the streets. But with the volume of guns we have in the United States of America, it would take hundreds of years at the pace they saw in Australia, where they were buying them back at about market rate, which is probably not something we would see happen in the United States. But even if we did, that's way too long to wait to resolve the problem of mass shooters. I'm on the side of we really need the FBI to actually respond when there's an alarm raised about someone who might potentially do something violent like this, we've seen them ignore time and again when alarms are raised about someone who's potentially dangerous. And I really think we need an investment in community and mental health care in the United States. Also, in the situation of Uvalde, we saw the police really botch their response here and wait far too long to even enter the building. So there's a lot of what ifs in this situation. Amber, what's your what's your response to what's going on with this family's lawyer and the statement he made there? Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, there's just one statistic in the United States that disproves everything he's saying, which is that the vast majority of gun deaths in this country are done with handguns. 
handguns, you have to be 21 to purchase. And if you were to ban so-called assault weapons, which would include the AR-15, which is just a standard semi-automatic rifle, it's in fact the most popular rifle in the country. Millions of people own them. There's nothing special about it compared to any other semi-automatic firearm. Um, you would still see the number of deaths due to handguns. Uh, I mean, it's higher than rifles. So, so trying to get rid of so-called assault weapons because they look scary is just not rooted in fact. And I think it's clear that when we look at what is consistent across mass shooters, that there are societal and cultural problems that we need to address that have nothing to do with guns. Guns have existed in this country since its inception. The Second Amendment was clear that the right to self-defense is a God-given right. And yet school shootings in particular and mass shootings have only become commonplace in the past couple of decades, really since Columbine. And so what you see a lot in these mass shooters is you see that they have pre-existing mental health issues. A lot of them are actually on SSRIs, which if not prescribed properly or prescribed for the wrong reasons can lead to issues of suicidal ideation and suicide, as well as more severe depression, bipolar and schizophrenia. You also see that these uh, individuals typically have very fraught relationships with their parents. Um, frequently, they actually have one parent who's not in the home at all. They especially have problems with father figures or a lack thereof. They uh, almost uh, exclusively go to uh, public schools as opposed to private schools. And of course, all the shootings take place in gun-free zones, typically where there are no school resource officers or school security. Um, apparently in this case, this report found that the teacher who closed the door or the teacher who was accused of propping a door open had in fact closed the door, but all of the doors were unlocked that day for some reason, which you wouldn't know unless you were on the outside trying to pull on the door to get it open to see if it were locked. So it's an abject failure um, across the board from whatever school safety situation, whatever school safety plan they had at this school. And you're exactly right to point out that the, the vast majority of the blame I think falls on the police. It ended up being border patrol who drove an hour to get to the school that were the ones who ended up breaching the school and taking down the shooter after local law enforcement repeatedly told their uh, subordinates not to go in. And I think that there's a problem here where whatever training that they did have was either inadequate or it prioritizes following orders at all costs, which is a theme we talk about on this show a lot. And if you're in the in a scenario where your superior is telling you not to go in and take out an active shooter that currently is killing children, and you don't think that maybe you should follow the actual protocol you were taught, which is active shooters are taken out immediately. That's the first thing you do in an active shooter situation. I mean, I, we just have to question what mentally was going on there with all of these officers such that they all thought it was the right thing to do to hang back and even prevent parents from going in to try to save their kids. There really is not a, a better example or, or worse, if you want to put it that way, of every single part of the system failing in Uvalde. Absolutely. Yes. The parents being willing to go in but the officers who supposedly risk their life to do their job to protect the public not being willing to go in. I mean, I can imagine me being there and wanting to go in with the parents, especially considering the police have bulletproof vests on and they are armed. And there there were children who are completely innocent who are on the other side of that assault rifle. I just can't imagine a world where they felt good about that decision. And I'm sure many of the officers didn't in the days and weeks to come. 
But this kind of situation is is something that we need to look into from also a very scientific perspective. When we saw the original investigation of murders be the usual protocol, motive means opportunity. That was flipped on its head when we saw the rise of serial killers in the United States and actually transitioning the way they investigate crimes was necessary to catch serial killers because it was a different kind of crime. There was oftentimes no motive, means, or opportunity, no connection to the victim of the crime. Similarly, mass shootings are very different from what we've seen in serial killings and other murders. And the fact that they happen so frequently at schools, that it's resulted in this kind of pop culture phenomenon understanding of that kid looks like he would end up being a school shooter. If we have young kids who are in school identifying this, who is who is the profile? It's usually someone who's very alone, someone who's very different from the other students. I mean, if I was working for the FBI, I would be saying, okay, how can we prevent this kind of alienation in America's schools? Because this tends to be the usual perpetrator of mass shootings. I mean, seriously, it feels like laziness, a lack of interest, and a lack of resources allocated properly in the FBI, considering they had four officers working with that 16-year-old autistic boy who was recruited into ISIS. I mean, when you have such a surplus of people raising flags about potential mass shootings, but that's what four officers are tasked with over a period of three years. It just doesn't make sense in terms of allocation of resources, especially considering the public has near identified the usual perpetrator of mass shooters. I really think an investment in school and resources and a higher ratio of teacher to students in these schools is what's needed if we're going to repair this epidemic, I think, of, of young male loneliness in America's public schools. Yeah, that's exactly right. And then I also think on the police side of this, there needs to be accountability for especially the leadership who failed to follow proper protocol here. There needs to be equal, if not greater, consequences for police failing to act as there are if they act in the wrong way. Uh, we've focused on the latter so much over the past few years, um, but we haven't focused on the former of what happens when we neuter our police force and encourage them to be disengaged from the populations that they're supposed to be protecting. That's going to do it for us this week on Rising. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Enjoy your snow day. Bye, y'all.